0: before we start the episode i just want to say this was probably my favorite episode i ever done here on the podcast alice she's a wonderful person and as you can see and you're going to hear she fights for what she believes and i had a lot of fun so just a a pre just a pre a pre-interview shout out for alice she's absolutely amazing and i hope all of you enjoy the interview here it is still the night churros Calzone Apple mm-hmm. and mash Toad in the hole, Paella Welcome back to another episode of Turning Chickens and Breaking Dishes And today is a special episode While, well, my guest today, how can I put this? She's like food, like the Beatles are for music. An activist chef, restaurateur, and author, her life changed when she came back from Paris in the late 1960s. In 1971, she opened Chez Panisse, a pioneer farm-to-table movement that, at the time, was not exist existing in this country. She wrote several books, including her memoir *Coming to My Senses*, *The Making of Contar Culture Cook*, founder of Chez Panisse Foundation, and *Edible Schoolyards*. I have a million questions for her. But let's just start with a few. Miss Alice Waters, how are you?
1: Well, I'm very pleased to be talking to you, to me, you.
0: First important question, have you ever been to Portugal?
1: I have only briefly been to Portugal.
0: Alice, you were wandering those streets of Paris, you never wander. You know what I need? A weekend in Lisbon. That never came to your mind. <laughs> <laughs>
1: that's what I need right now is a weekend in <laughs> Lisbon
0: <laughs> well let's go I need a weekend let's in go. Lisbon <laughs> yes I haven't been there since August so for someone like me that's not a w- I've never been to the west coast although I've been in the country for 11 years but I live on the east coast what's so special about Berkeley?
1: about Berkeley well it's always been considered a rather radical place to live at least back in the 60s went to UC Berkeley during the free speech movement and the anti-war movement. And um, I learned a lot about values, human values, and how important they were.
0: Do you still, and we'll go back to Berkeley and the activism movements, do you still enjoy cooking?
1: Do I? (laughs) I wouldn't, I could never period. I mean, it's just part of the way I live my life. And um, I don't cook at the restaurant anymore. I haven't cooked for a very long time. But I'm engaged with all the cooks all of the time. So now, especially during the pandemic, I had the great job of Tasting all the food that we were packaging up and sending, <laughs> people. but I had the very hard job of being completely with the cooks about about the food. And what is really wonderful about Japanese is that we've always worked together in this way. There's not that hierarchy of the chef at the top and all the Comey at the bottom. We work in a very collaborative way. And so they, believe it or not, really appreciate my comments always. And I really appreciate the conversation that, that, that we learn something from each other.
0: I mean, if Alice Waters ever talked with me, you know, if I was your commie and you said something, of course, I would appreciate any comments. Even if you said Portugal is horrible, I was like, absolutely, Alice, (laughs) I absolutely agree with you. Why do you think the restaurant became so famous? Because this is a time, let's go back to 1971. Actually, as a curiosity, do you still remember the menu? I do. Okay. What was it? Can you, can you?
1: We had pate en croute. Okay had um duck roasted with green olives and we had an apple galette for dessert.
0: How much was it? Do you remember what was the price back yeah. then? I love to know. I think it was $375. Wow. now that's the every- price just of the olives. That's amazing.
1: <laughs> yeah, but I wanted To people to feel like they were eating in somebody's house Mm -hmm. and so we were all eating the same food and believe it or not we really changed that format in the downstairs we have a longer meal and a more expensive one but we have never changed that and it's amazing that we can fill the dining room every night with people who want to have what we'd like to cook for them. And I think that we've gained their confidence because I wanted, at the, from the very beginning, food to taste like the food in 65. And it was when France was a real slow food nation, if you would will. I mean, it was only food in Paris that was brought from nearby farms and ranches and fish and uh, fish from the coast. There might not have even been any olive oil in Paris at that time because mm-hmm. that was south of France. And I fell in love with those and the wild strawberry really woke me up. And when so when I came back, I was looking for taste and I After about a year or two, I ended up at the doorsteps of the local organic producers in California. And I never looked back. I just immediately wanted to buy food directly from them. And Bob Kennard became our first important gardener and take all the scrap and pick up his beautiful produce.
0: Do you think, because now, you know, listening you talk, it, that sounds logical. You go get to your farm, right? You go there, you talk with the guy, hey, I'm opening a restaurant, I need this. And again, since I'm not from the US and this is a different time, um, why was that so difficult? Why was people weren't doing that? What do you think? Is there a particular reason? No.
1: Oh, I do think there was very particular reason. Tell me,
0: tell me and everything. And that
1: is the, the indoctrination from a, Fast food had taught us a different way of eating. And it wanted us to buy food that was fast, quick, and easy. And we didn't have deep roots in farming in this country. I mean, we did farm, and especially in the South, there are incredible farms. But we were always for quantity, excuse me, not for taste. Mm -hmm. And so when the industry came into our world in the 50s, -hmm. we just believed that this was a way to eat and to eat cheaply and, uh, and quickly. But that was so different in France. At that time, I mean, at that time, students have lunch with their families. And mm. people waited in line for a half an hour to get a baguette that was hot out of the oven.
0: And they talk and while I they think, wait, right?
1: They do talk while yes. they
0: uh-huh. And
1: right now, there's a, a bakery in Berkeley that we've been buying bre- bread from for since it began. And... People line up out in front and the same thing is happening. They're having conversations and then they go into the bakery and they smell and they get their hot baguette and there's something to that. It's like a a sensual experience that you're seeing and you're smelling and then you get to
0: taste it. And those
1: senses are very important to getting information into our minds.
0: Sensuality and food are connected, don't you agree? Well, it,
1: uh, absolutely. Yeah. It should appeal to all of our senses. It should look, should taste delicious. It should be something that that you can pick up with your hands that you can hold eating a peach or right now those little kishu mandarins mm-hmm. that peel so quickly. I mean, you just can't get enough of them in California. <laughs> but I love, and I know you know about this because you come from a country that always put emphasis eating seasonally. You didn't try to eat avocados in the middle of winter. Yeah. It was something that happened at another time. And that is what's been so beautiful during the pandemic, because we've always done that. So we're not having to cook the same thing over and over. When, you know, when the peaches are gone in the fall, we go on to pears. And when pears are over, we go on to apples yes and we look forward to spring fruit that keeps you engaged and curious all the time.
0: One of the most fond memories I have growing up, I used to walk to school this back in the days that you <laughs> let school, kids just kids just go to school uh, first second grade, just walking by myself to school. and <clears throat> you have in Portugal in the south of Portugal, you would have like orange trees. And tangerine trees, like in the middle of the road. So it was the most amazing free breakfast. You just go to school and grab a, <clears throat> grab an orange. And almost in that way, you can feel the seasons, right? Because that same tree will not produce that fruit six months later.
1: That experience of walking every day really changed my life. I get up in the morning every day and first thing, go out. You see what... The whole cycle of life. And you fall, I think, completely in love with nature yeah,
0: when you get close like that. That's true. Do you think, I was talking with someone actually that you know a few weeks ago, Dan Barber, the chef from Blue Hill. He was here. He said, and I'm going to ask you the question. If do you think the farm to table sounds good nowadays to say, and if you think restaurants oversell the idea.
1: I don't if you're doing it the right way, you can't oversell. But I think of it differently. I think of it more in the context of, I think of it as like community supported agriculture, that you make a commitment to the farmer to buy all of the food and at the real cost. I'm not asking for a wholesale price. I want to give out of my needs to pay the farm workers I want a relationship with people I buy food from and so I and I also love to put the real names of the food on the menu and when you're talking about a Tokyo turnip for instance it's something new for people and if they taste it and they remember that name and I think it it is endless that you can sort of edibly educate the people who come and eat at your restaurant Mm -hmm. and it's not really possible for people to do that if they are not really truly connecting with the farmer and supporting the farmer and Mm -hmm. learning from the farmer. So I I know there are, you know, lots of words thrown around <laughs> mm-hmm. and certainly farms at table is one of them. But the real connection needs to be made and the support of the people who are taking care of the land for our future that are pulling the people that care about the nutrition of the food and are addressing climate with regenerative organic food. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And how important could more important could that be right now?
0: I think the pandemic that helped, which everything there's two sides of it. Obviously the pandemic was horrible for our industry it was, but I think gave an awareness to people or to a lot of people that they didn't have it before. People, the whole start moving movement to go buy more local, right? Go down the corner, go start buying. And I don't think people were that aware. Or if they were, it was just a little different. People talked more. People shared more on the social media. And that kind of helped small businesses a lot as well. Like you said, just buy directly from you know the farmer. And I think actually the pandemic helped a little bit in that awareness. Hopefully it did.
1: Also exposed the big industrials that would rather have their animals die than give them to people to eat. You know? that aren't, weren't caring about the people working in the factories. And that's shocking to me. And we saw the disaster of food being imported around the world in the Suez Canal. And what are all those animals doing on board, ship? And, and to think that it was just 60, 70 years ago that we purchased only coffee tans, wheat, always ate local food and in this country i lived in new jersey so i lived on the east coast and we didn't have anything i mean corn and tomatoes were summer food Mm -hmm. we ate differently in the winter but then came the fast food industry just bringing food from anywhere and everywhere and just said this is our look at this we get to buy food whenever we want, it, and it should be available. And it's okay to to be out of season. Yeah, but that's what is. We have a great opportunity now, though, to teach about the connection between growing food and eating it. And I'm now that you're there in Washington D.C. I hope you will. Uh, Convince the Bidens to put a garden in the front (laughs) yard of the White House and grow food generatively and give that food to hungry students in Washington, D.C. What more beautiful message could be given out in the world right now that we care? And I think the Victory Garden movement in the United States during the war it was around the world, actually. It wasn't just in this country to grow food. But I think of how the allotments of England and the, and that in Italy were used to grow food for families. What a great idea to give people land to do this.
0: Do you grow anything? Do you have anything in your backyard? I do. <laughs> what's a, what's a Alice Waters' backyard? Let's just go through the agriculture okay. movement here. Yeah. Tell me. What we have
1: out, out at my beautiful redwood tree, which has its own microclimate, <laughs> mm-hmm. and so I have to be careful about what's planted nearby. But I have lots of salad, and I have lots of herbs. I have a huge ro- rosemary bush. I have citrus. I have a, a quince tree. Okay. I have a persimmon tree. I have a bay tree and I have an apple tree.
0: Well, that's that's a feast.
1: That, that is.
0: That's a feast? <laughs> no, okay. I
1: just don't want to be. I have some sage, which doesn't grow as well. And I have some fantastic raspberries that uh, I would love to have a lot more. But it's my, my garden is small, but I just know that I can always count on it for certain things. And during the pandemic, I planted my front yard. I took up all the flowers and I put in a victory garden side and I planted garlic and lots of things. I planted it in that little strip of land between the street and the sidewalk. Mm-hmm. And that that's where the garlic is and people, would write me little notes and say how do you keep the the animals away how do you keep the deer out yeah yeah <laughs> and i said i just plant things that i don't think the deer like <laughs> Like That's, garlic,
0: yeah. that should be a, that should be a movement. Why plant a flower when when you can have a garlic? There you go. That's a slogan. That's a movement. <laughs> I love it. I you absolutely all have
1: to eat.
0: <laughs> I know. It's actually just just a little side note. It's interesting how you connect with food. You in general as a human. I was in Finland in this past summer, and my friend lives right next. He is he lives in the middle of nowhere, and he lives right next to a dense dense Finnish forest, kind of like a Viking. And that was one mm. of the biggest joys. Just going to the forest, and we got, I don't know, pounds and pounds of blueberry, and we made blueberry wow. pie later, and chanterelle mushrooms, which he's got to be a little more careful, but but, but it's – and I remember him talking about it. It was it was just wonderful. You just walk. It was bags and bags, and it's really good because then he just freezes all the blueberries for the whole year, and then you make smoothies, and you make jams, and you make whatever you want. I think it's delicious. What, when, how, when, and why, or why, or all of those three together – you shift from being a, restaur- a restaurateur to an activist, or the activist was always there? Because I, I read before, that started very, very early, actually. It wasn't just a, a newer thing.
1: <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That sort of began back in the 60s for me. Mm-hmm. But but i learned that if we all come together, we can make dramatic change. And I think there are two things that, of course... I learned about buying food directly from the farmers during the 51 years of the restaurant and how rewarding that was and how nourishing that was in all ways. But I started the Edible Schoolyard Project.
0: Yeah, that was the next question. About 26
1: years ago. And I was called by a principal of the school to. Come and beautify his school. That's what he wanted. And I couldn't resist that opportunity. I was a Montessori teacher. So i had been trained in London. And I really believe in learning by doing. That's always been part of my thinking, running the restaurant that way appealing to the senses because those are our pathways into our minds. And so I I went and talked with the principal and we walked around the school. There were a thousand middle school students and they spoke 22 different languages at home. Mm -hmm. And so I didn't realize what a good test case it would be. And I suggested to the principal that we make a garden on part of the property because it was a very big piece of land. And I thought we'll use a garden and a kitchen classroom, not to teach cooking or gardening per se, but to teach the academic subjects. So for instance, if you're studying the Middle East in a history class, You go into the kitchen and you learn about the food of the Middle East. You learn about making hummus and and pita bread. And when you're talking about the geography of that country, you're learning where those ingredients are grown. And all students make the food together and then they eat together. And I can tell you, that after class, they can really know their history of that country for any exam they have. And the same thing happens in the garden. I mean, it could be an art class in the garden, but it could be a science class or a biology class. And you're at the same time that you're learning about that subject, you're smelling the herbs, you're seeing the bees, <laughs> yep. you're learning about, about the the growing of food in a, a really organic way.
0: This is a loaded question that I ask a few guests sometimes, but I like, obviously, to know their answer. What aspects of food culture would you like Americans to adopt in the reverse American food culture you wish was adopted somewhere else? Ooh, that's a hard question. Well,
1: that's... <laughs> well I'm really focused on, on the, uh, the ingredients from the south of this country. And my very good friend Edna Lewis has written many books that focus really on what she could grow in her garden. I won't forget she wanted to go to this big conference and she was making dessert and she wanted cream and she asked if she could bring her cow. <laughs> <laughs> and I, that said everything yeah. about what I, I'm thinking. But I, we need to learn about the importance of food in schools. And that is completely my mission right mm-hmm. now is to really change the way that we purchase food for schools and how children eat that food together. Because it is vital to our health and to the health of the planet that we purchase local food in this country wherever we're living. I mean, yes, we have to have greenhouses houses in Maine, but people like Elliot Coleman, he grows for the schools all winter long, and then he closes during the summer because yeah. there's lots of food grown in Maine in the summer. But we have done this before, and we can do it again with great knowledge from around the world. And I forgot to say that the Edible Schoolyard Network, mm. believe it or not, is 6,200 schools around the world. Now, I don't know what they're doing. <laughs> yeah. I'd like to go visit all 6,200. Mm-hmm. But I know they believe in stewardship of the land, believe in building community, care about nourishment and equity, and that they're doing something like we're doing at the Martin Luther King School in Berkeley. But it's about teaching human values. That happens when you cook and eat together. And uh, we have lost that. And I think our democracy along with it. And I believe that bringing real food into the schools, and it's not going to be more expensive. If you leave out the middleman and you reconnect with the people who live nearby and you can really stimulate an economy of every state. If the public school system supported the farmers and the ranchers, and all the people taking yeah. care of the land. I mean, it just seems so obvious. Yeah. <laughs>
0: And it's it's interesting to see how passionate you are about this. I remember when I, when I used to work at the Portuguese embassy, now I'm at the European Union embassy. But when I was at the Portuguese embassy, the ambassador had his kids here. Kids, they were 16 years old. And I remember the daughter coming in, one, I think it was the first week of school, and she came in like screaming at three o'clock. And I said, what's wrong? And she was kind of joking, but not joking. And she said, this is what's wrong with this country. I At 11 a.m., I had to eat frozen meatballs. How is this a meal for anyone? But it was interesting. because you know back home and now I see that you know I'm 35 now now I can start saying back in my days I remember that we used to complain but every day there was and obviously we're a coastal country things are a little smaller but still you would have fish you have meat you have veg you'll have soup you know soup is an essential uh, every household poor rich doesn't matter you always have soup even if that means you put turnips potatoes onions in in a pot you boil it and you blitz it you got your soup and it's interesting how, just a culture thing, like you mentioned, right? And I remember she was, she was enraged by it. This was 10 years ago. And she was like, this is horrible. <laughs> and, you know, yeah, it was interesting her talking about that. And here you talk, I remember that, that example.
1: Well, it's really been an intentional indoctrination of the fast food industry to, uh, to get to children and to get them addicted. Wow to the hamburger and french fries and sweet sweets of every kind. Mm-hmm. And we have to bring it back the real food in, uh, and the public school system is the only way we can reach every child. And it's why I'm really focused in California on the University of California, because they could make a path for K through 12. And I think it should be part of a whole big picture of understanding what we're teaching in schools, yeah. because the schools have been industrialized like the farms and it's kind of one size fits all. and the kids are so hungry for that connection. And I feel absolutely convinced because when I go to the school, I feel that excitement and of the empowerment of knowing how to feed yourself. And some kids like a lot of spices and they can go over and get the spices and put them in their dish. So it's, uh, it's a beautiful experiment,
0: mm-hmm. but
1: it needs to be
0: universal. Moving to our rapid fire question, but before that, yeah. allow me, Alice, just to, yes. what I, one, of, one of the things I think it's beautiful about you, because I think when we get to a certain age, not that, I mean, you are a wonderful, you know, you have your one wonderful age, but when you've done so much there, it's interesting because a lot of times we can just have this attitude of like, you know what, I had my career, you know? Let me just enjoy <laughs> my garden, right? Let me just enjoy. But here you talk like if you had still, you know, you have the energy of a twenty-year-old activist. Like, "Go, I want to change this." I think that's very inspiring, and that that's why it resonates. You are one of the biggest voice, and why people love you so much. And I, this is just a comment. It's just, I think it's wonderful to see someone that's done so much, but she's not quite. You still have the hunger for more, and that's something very beautiful to see. So that's my comment before the rapid fire questions. (laughs) Um, What was your first memory of taste?
1: I think it was eating a strawberry in Mm. my parents' victory garden back in about 1948.
0: What is the most underrated ingredient for you?
1: Oh, That's a very serious question.
0: (laughs) After everything Uh, we talked, yes, this is a serious one. (laughs)
1: I think, you know, some ways, garlic. Mm
0: -hmm. Then we go back to the garlic. I
1: think garlic, uh, I love the Chinese proverb, garlic is as good as 10 mothers. (laughs) (laughs) But garlic uh, makes a kind of taste in every cuisine that is really uh, important to me. And I don't think we use it enough because of the nutrition of that that
0: herb, that vegetable. Overrated ingredient for you.
1: Uh, oh, God. Um,
0: Just say it, Alice. It's okay. You can <laughs> say whatever you think. It's okay.
1: Uh, but it's overrated. Um, I have a me few.
0: For me, uh, lobster. Lobster. It's a lot of work <laughs> for what you get. Oh,
1: uh, That way.
0: In that way, you um, know, yeah, uh, for me, lobster, yeah, uh, it's one, it's up there for me.
1: Um, well, I guess overrated is sort of fancy cooking. The cooking it requires a kind of skills that most people don't have mm-hmm. and think they should have. The idea that that fancy food or Cooking is out of reach.
0: This might be a little tricky, but a strange food combination that you do, Alice, this can be good. This happens a lot in the sweet and salty world. Something when you snack on, you make a sandwich, someone look at you, be like, Alice, come on, are we doing this? There's there's a lot of crazy examples. I just heard a couple of days ago, someone told me they like to put ketchup on their dry cereal. I don't know, Alice, there's a lot. <laughs> I've heard peppermint candy cane inside of a dill pickle. I've heard so many things. But this happens a lot in the sweet and salty. Do you have anything you can think of?
1: Well, the first thing that came to mind is whatever I have left from dinner the night before that I have a little bit of. I just put on a tortilla on the fire.
0: Okay. and
1: Warm up, whatever that is. And oh, it can... doesn't
0: matter what it is.
1: Doesn't quite matter what okay. it is.
0: That's interesting. Uh,
1: I mean, even if it's a little leftover salad, even if it's some of those Tokyo okay, <laughs> I'll just warm them up and I'll put them in my little taco shell. I might add some uh some cumin <laughs> yeah. okay. or a little hot pepper, but I'm not afraid to be very non-traditional in that place. And somebody might say, what? (laughs) But I kind of love using everything. And I love love to make a meal in two minutes, (laughs) three minutes, whatever it takes. And it's always a great little breakfast.
0: Best midnight snack for you.
1: I don't stay up till midnight.
0: (laughs) Best 7 p.m. snack for you, Alice.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I... I guess I'm more of an afternoon snacker.
0: (laughs) Perfect. Let's do our afternoon snack. Uh, What's something you indulge a lot? I
1: love love dates. Okay. And I do. That's the good thing I like. And I never keep my little organic tortillas in the drawer there because they're too easy to reach. Okay. Um, (laughs) But I'm. Again, you know, I I eat more in the day than I eat in the night.
0: One meal you can have for the rest of your life. Oh boy! That well, tortilla with leftovers. To
1: have salad. Okay. No question. For the rest of my life, I will have salad. Probably both lunch and dinner, and they can include a lot of things. I mean. Like fish or, or anchovies. Uh, but I love to use my mandolin and I love to shave vegetables. And I'll mix up, you know, shaved carrots and cucumbers with lettuces of all colors. And mm-hmm. I make my salad um, visually very beautiful for myself. Maybe put in a little feta cheese.
0: <laughs> something like, this was uh, off script here, but you know, because he's Alice water, Something you should not put on a, something you should not put on a, on a salad, Alice. For you, or you think there's no rule here. Some people don't like fruit, for yeah, instance. There are
1: rules for me.
0: Okay, perfect. Rules
1: are about olive oil, really good quality, organic oil, and vinegar are essential mm-hmm. for me. Um, I I don't I can always taste that that makes the salad um, come together and then uh, I sometimes put a little mustard, garlic I usually put in the base of my vinaigrette but I don't like too much fruit in a salad I'm more of, I'm more of a savory but I've learned during the pandemic because they started slicing up beets and golden beets and red beets. I never knew I liked those. And I never knew I liked them in a salad. I never even knew that I liked thinly shaved with the mandolin, like even a zucchini. I I didn't know. So I'm more open than I guess I've ever been.
0: One of the biggest memories I have when I was growing up is... Making salad during the summer, it was just tomatoes, onions, and cucumbers, a a lot of oregano, (laughs) and then it was a lot of vinegar. So the ratio, you know, people back in the days just tell us it's three parts of oil for one part of vinegar, but people like what they like. So you can change up everything, right? So I used to put my mom used to do very vinegary salads, and, but we wouldn't eat for the first 20 minutes of salad. You got to let it sit and all the juices on the bottom. You grab a big, sa- a good sourdough bread after you eat the salad, you dunk it. I remember that was just one of the best things of my life. I'm
1: coming to your house. Let's go. Summer.
0: Let's do that. Let's, <laughs> <do this. laughs>
1: no Let's do Tomatoes that. Tomatoes from the East Coast are the best. Yeah, <laughs> tom-
0: Yes, I agree. The name of the podcast is Turning Chickens and Breaking Dishes. This is actually two Portuguese phrases. Turning chickens means someone that has a lot of experience, and breaking dishes means someone that has exceeded expectations. Alice Waters, do you think you've been turning more chickens or breaking more dishes?
1: <laughs> what a cray title. I didn't know thank what you. it meant. I know, thank you.
0: Thank you. At least the title is good. I, I
1: think of that always, literally. It's hard for me to I think of it in the way that you do, because I'm I'm always grilling chickens. <laughs> <laughs> And I never want to break it dish <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> because I like eating on dishes. I always eat on dishes, okay. even if something comes in a box. I from the restaurant. I take it out. I put it on the dish. I put it on the table, and. It- It's very important. And when I break a dish, I try to put glue on it and put it back
0: together. (laughs) Okay, that's a good answer. I like that. (laughs) At at the end, in Portugal, if someone tells you to sell your fish, here he goes again on the Portuguese phrase, uh, that means to talk about yourself. Not that you need introductions, Alice, you haven't done this, you know, you haven't started last year, but, you know, what's in the future, where people can find a restaurant, you know, uh, the edible schoolyard, just Just sell your fish a little bit, Alice.
1: I think it's really important to see schools that are doing the right thing. Because seeing is believing. I went to a wonderful school yesterday called Oxbow up in Napa Valley. And it just opened my mind. Even though I know so much about what's going on. In the public school system. I just saw those students all helping themselves to this beautiful lunch and coming and sitting down together and eating it. And they were teenagers. And they just loved what they had. And I I think we don't believe that children do like food that's good for them and seasonal they do but enough to answer or would you like something else no
0: no no she can start talking Alice see the beauty about see the, the reason I do this podcast is you know you Might not have millions of listeners, I'm but I'm super proud of people I've I had here before. And you were one of the first people that I tried, but you know, you had your agenda, and I waited, I waited. I'm patient, it's okay. Uh, and that's the beauty <laughs> about the US. The my Portuguese ambassador always he always told me, like, you knock at the door to Americans 15 times, they say 15 times, no, the 16 times they say, okay, let's do this. <laughs> so, well, um, I don't no,
1: want to be that kind of person. with No, you. no, no,
0: with you, you just 15, me was
1: 15, that exact
0: perfect. <laughs> So, no, it's, there's no right or wrong answer, right? I think it gives me a big joy. And I've said this before, and this is true, having someone like you because it means a lot for me. It means a lot for the industry, it means a lot for people in general. And, you know, I previous seasons, I had a couple of people that I really look up to, and I had them. You know, I had Jack Peppa in the first season, which is someone, you know, everybody loves a Jacques. Who doesn't love a Jacques? Exactly. He's representing the East Coast, he's representing the West Coast. So, there you go. And, you know, there's just some people that I'm really happy that I had here. And so, you know, this is delightful for me. It's delightful. So there's no wrong answer. That was a good answer. And that's your your passion. And I like that. And before I let you go, this is important. Alice, what's for dinner tonight? Do we have any idea?
1: Well, I'm going to lunch today at Chez Panisse. It's the first day we've been open for lunch since the pandemic. Okay. And we're only open two days, Friday and Saturday lunch. We've been open since September for dinner five days, but this is the first lunch. So I'm going to go and really feast at lunchtime and probably we will have a very small salad and soup for dinner.
0: (laughs) There you go. And, you know, if I I have to go to the West Coast, I haven't been to the West Coast in 11 years in this country. I haven't been, but I will shoot you a message because I want to go there and I want to meet you in person.
1: I would love to invite you and to show you the edible schoolyard, I'd love to do that. And I just, um, I think the other thing I'd love to do is take you to the farmer's market in San Francisco because Mm -hmm. I think it's one of the best in this country. And it really gives you an idea of how we can do this, distribute food around a big city. And it's been a real and really important uh, project at the Ferry Building.
0: Alice, thank you very much. Thank you. As sir. we say in a very nursing way, and I'm going to say it Beijing. Beijing means a little kiss in Portugal. This time we see Beijing. <laughs> My mom, she always says when she talks to me after the phone Beijing, David. So that's <laughs> Beijing for you, Alice. And I say Bye. this with love and respect. Thank you very much. Have thank a wonderful day. So thank much.
1: you. It's Bye-bye. been a pleasure. Bye.
0: Thank you very much, Alice, for coming on the podcast. I told you it was going to be a good interview, so I hope you enjoyed it. If you want to follow me on Instagram, you can find me at davidgmartinschef. That's D-A-V-I-D-E-G-M-A-R-T-I-N-S, chef. If you have any questions for me, you can ask me there, or you can also send an email to info at davidgmartins.com. I'll be back next week. I hope you have an amazing week. Be happy, be safe, and happy Valentine's Day. Adios.